Uh, if you are here for the first time, we're so thankful that you've decided to worship with us today. We want you to know that you're loved, you're valued, and that we uh, want to walk alongside of you to really care for you. You know, as we're nearing the end of the book of Ephesians that we've been kind of walking through over the past couple months, you know, today we get to the last group of people in Ephesians chapter 6 that Paul is addressing in the home as this letter is being read out loud uh, to the church. You know, two weeks ago, Paul addressed husbands and wives. Uh, last week, uh, we looked at how Paul addressed the parents and the children. And this week, Paul addresses bondservants and masters. And as we kind of wade through these five verses in chapter six, what we'll really see as our main idea today is that the gospel renews how we work. And yes, there's a lot more to to our text that we're going to have to wade through today. But when we get to the bottom of it, we'll wrestle with how Jesus changes how we interact with our bosses and our employers. And if you have anybody under you at work, we'll also see what the Bible says about how you are to treat them and to interact with them. And as we think about uh, this idea of work, I started to think back to all the random odd jobs and bosses I've had over the years. And I've had my fair share of good ones and not so good ones. You know, growing up, I did all sorts of jobs. I worked at a car wash. I worked for a moving company. I was an intramural referee. I actually babysat for this family one summer. They had a bunch of boys. Uh, One of my favorite jobs in college was working for this developer doing just odd jobs around his house on his property. He lived on about 10 acres of land and I'd show up, he'd give me a list, I'd work all day. It was, it worked, he paid me really well, it was a good gig. Except for one summer when I, when he had me go out to one of his properties, it was about 50 acres of land. I wore two layers of thick long sleeves, long pants, gloves, boots in the middle of July, 100 degrees outside, covered from head to toe just to protect me from ticks. And I just picked up stumps and big rocks out in the field all day long, just tossing them into the back of a pickup truck for 10 hours a day. You know, one day I had my roommates help me get all the ticks off of me that latched onto my clothes and they counted about 100 ticks. And yes, I got paid twice as much per hour for that job. So I got paid really well for a college student, but I think you get the idea. It was hard work and it wasn't exactly my life passion. You know, I could tell crazy stories uh, for days about all the jobs and crazy bosses I've had over the years, but one more quick one to help us get to where we're going. You know, my first job out of college when I was in seminary, I worked for a construction supply company selling and delivering materials to job sites. And I I eventually ended up managing one of the the locations soon after I graduated. But when I first started, I went through all sorts of training. And part of my training to get to know our product was just a stock shelf. So all day long I had stock shelves. And we literally had millions of item numbers of inventory in our company all over the country of everything you could imagine that would go on a large construction site. And so for six hours a day, I stocked shelves. And because because of that, after, about a couple, after a couple weeks, when someone walked in and they were looking for something, I could, I could point out, I could show them where it was pretty quickly. And so it was a good and helpful way to train. And I eventually trained people later doing the same thing. But for me, when I first started, if I couldn't find something where it went, I would ask my boss after looking for five to 10 minutes, hey, where does this go? And then he would get so mad at me, like just like, like visibly annoyed and clearly irritated. Well, one day, after about the fifth time of having to ask him, he got so mad, he went up to my cart that was stocked full of probably 200 little odd items that go all over. I had it all sorted and organized. And he just goes up and just knocks over the cart. He storms out of the store and he squealed wheels with the trucks. He was just flying out of the parking lot. He just left. You know, he didn't come back all day long. He was gone literally all day. I had to run the entire branch by myself. I mean, talking about a sink or swim moment. 
And yeah, I figured it out, but no, it wasn't fun. But I tell you that story specifically because I remember during that time while I was in seminary preparing for ministry, very vividly wrestling with what does it look like to be a Christian and to work for someone that's not exactly the easiest to work for. Because again, I've had my fair share of crazy bosses and I've done a lot of less than life-giving work and I've had to wrestle with what does it look like to do a job as a follower of Jesus that is far less than life-giving. And what has been such an incredible help to me throughout the years is just thinking through with this passage is what we're going to see today in our passage. Where Paul says to a group of people that very likely did not love what they did for work. And so yesterday we talk about work, but not so much about the work itself, but more so about the relationship dynamics with those that we work with like the employer and the employee dynamics, the manager and the person under them. And as we think about this, I think we can agree that these relational dynamics for those that we work with and under play a major part of our day. And thankfully, the Bible speaks into this. And so if you're here today and you're weary from work, or if you're struggling with a boss, or maybe you have a great boss, or you are a boss, wherever you are today, whether you work outside of the home or inside of the home, maybe doing chores or yard work, or maybe you're a student, or maybe you do volunteer work, today is for you. And interestingly enough, the people that Paul is addressing today, they worked in the home. They were a part of the family dynamics during this time. And so when this letter was read to these churches, they likely would have gathered in a home and Paul knew that this third, about a third of the, group, the people that he's addressing, this group of people would have been listening in as it read, as it was read. So Paul just finished addressing the children as we read last week. And then he says in verses five to nine of chapter six, this is what he says. Bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling with a sincere heart as you would Christ. Not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bond servant or is free. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. And I know this isn't immediately talking about work as in working for a company like I've been talking about, but rather working as a slave and a master. It's translated here as bondservant, but it's the same word as slave, which I know seems a little dicey for us today, and it's going to need some explanation, which is why I said before to get to our main idea and where we're going, we'll have to do some heavy lifting and we're going to wade through our text a bit because I know the big elephant in the room with this passage is for us to ask, how do we deal with this theme of slaves and masters in the Bible? And so we're going to spend a little bit of time addressing this. But then we're going to spend most of our time looking at the heart and the intent of the passage that Paul was trying to get across. And the intent of the passage is that because we follow Jesus, we now work differently. Leading us to our two points for today. Number one, the gospel in slavery. And number two, the gospel in work. Our first point is going to be a little bit more lecture-like, addressing the issue of slavery in the Bible. Trying to really think well about this. Where our second point will be more working through the text like a typical New City sermon. And on our second point, we're going to have two subpoints more geared towards our text and work. But before we get into our text, I do want to first point something out that Paul said. He said, bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ. And I know this whole slaves and master thing is a barrier we're going to need to work through. But before we get into that, I want to remind us that this passage is the result of living life in the Spirit. 
Now, over the past few weeks, we've looked at the gospel in marriage, the gospel in parenting, and now gospel in work. And what we've been, what we have to keep in mind, just like with every other week, is that what we'll see today comes on the heels of three chapters of our gospel hope and our gospel identity. This is a response to the truth that, the, that God sent Jesus down to earth to live the life that we could not live, and then he died the death that we deserve to die. And when we hand our life to Jesus, it then changes us. The fruit of our life and how we live is totally dependent on the health of our roots, like where our roots sit. Again, our identity drives our behavior. And if we are in Christ, then we have to ask, well, who are we? Where we're no longer slaves to our sin. No, we've been set free. We're called children of God. We're no longer rebels. No, we've been redeemed. That's what God does in the gospel. He sets the captive free. He redeems rebels. And then God sets them down at his table and says to us, you're my son, you're my daughter, I'm proud of you. God, our Father, doesn't sit up in heaven and force us into obedience by twisting our arms. No, he woos us into obedience through his love and kindness. Yes, absolutely, we're commanded to obey, but it's, commanded, it's a command that's obeyed out of love and not force. And so part of being in God's family as God's children, what comes with this is God's power in the spirit. He comes into our life and he begins to change and he reshapes and he renews us. And then when we sit in the soil of God's love and we're watered and we're tendered by his word and by his grace, the fruit of our life, it begins to look like Jesus. Again, when we see the love of God, we begin to see that the way in which he designed us to live is for our good, even when it's not easy. We saw this last week when we were looking at kids and parents, seeing what we all know that walking in, seeing that we all know that walking in obedience, it's not easy. Paul said, children, obey your parents. And now in verse five, Paul said, bond servants, obey your earthly masters, which we'd have to agree that this also is hard. And obedience in the workplace, like it can be frustrating. Obedience is challenging because our desires and our wills and our worlds, they're competing with those in authority over us. But what we'll see here when we're walking in the spirit, when the entire household is walking by the spirit, then God's design for our work is put on display. This is, part of, this is what it looks like to live in a spirit-filled household or to transfer this to our lives today. This is what it looks like to be spirit-filled in the workplace. And so I wanted to lay that as the foundation first, but now we need to address the question of slaves and masters, which I'm assuming is a great roadblock for many. Which leads us to number one, the gospel and slavery. So again, how do we wrestle through seeing both the gospel and slavery in the Bible at the same time? Like there's a tension here. In fact, this is one of those things that atheists and agnostics will point to and say, see, Christianity, it's a big hoax, thinking that the Bible validates slavery because we see it in our text. And so I want you to stay locked in with me for about six or seven minutes as I explain this, because no, the Bible does not validate or condone slavery. So first, we must understand, as we kind of get into this, like we're coming at this through our Americanized lens. Like we come to this with preconceived thoughts and associations around the idea of slavery. And I think we get this, right? Because with every language, a word can mean two different things based off of our culture, context, and background. And so when we say things like slave and master, because we live in the United States, our minds often go to the horror of 19th century American slavery that was racially biased and came with a lifelong purchase of a person. And so we must understand that what we see in the Bible is not exactly the same thing. 
But we must also see and understand that yes, it is still called slavery in the Bible because there was a level of authority that masters had. But we also need to understand there's a difference between what we think of as, as a slave and a servant or a slave and a living nanny or a maid or an on-site property manager. You know, when we think of slave, we think of a lifelong people ownership and a harsh treatment that comes with a threatening and an abuse. And everything in our passage today totally negates that and fights against that idea of slavery. No, Paul is adamantly opposed to of what we think of slavery and says, stop threatening them. Treat them well. It says, you're not their master. No, God is. And so the way Paul is addressing them is to view them almost more like an on-site property manager. But because they called them slaves during this time, Paul uses the word slave, which as we know, comes with a really negative connotation which is why Bible translators often use the word bondservant and not slave in the New Testament, where in the Old Testament, slave is more regularly used because there was much harsher treatment and there was injustice like we see in American history. Injustice like we see in the American history. And so as we continue to think about uh, this during the time of the Roman Empire, these bondservants were bound by contract for seven years to their master. Like kind of like a working contract. And many slaves actually became very educated through their service and with it, it helped them with their financial upward mobility. Being a bond servant often provided opportunity after they completed their service. And some could own property and were able to save up and then purchase uh, their freedom prior to the seven years. And so please hear me, by no means am I trying to paint slavery in a good light. But rather, I'm just saying many during this time viewed this type of bond service as a means to better their life. In fact, Felix, one of the guys known for putting Paul in prison in Acts 24, he started out as a slave and then that helped him then rise to governor. And it's also known that many slaves became like family and they inherited much of their wealth. And so some were enslaved voluntarily just to better their life. And so yes, they were called slaves during this time. But again, I'm just trying to show that there was a difference. But we also know that this wasn't always the case. Like this was more of a best case scenario. Or most, unfortunately, when you look back at the history in the Roman Empire, they were put into slavery because they were captured in war because they had to pay off debts. And as we saw last week, tragically, some parents would actually abandon or sell off their children, just showing the gross evil that is slavery. And along with that, we know that many slaves during this time, they were just treated very harshly, which is why Paul wrote, Paul's words to the masters were so helpful and countercultural. Again, it was revolutionary. So yes, many were treated very harshly, but some who allowed the gospel to reshape that which was broken, they actually had good relationships and they would often stay even after the contract, their contract was, was over. And maybe you're thinking, well, why didn't Paul call them to just free the slaves? Well, he did that in the book of Philemon. But what Paul is doing here is instilling change from the bottom up and not the top down. Like he's, 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 he's transforming the whole world through one church at a time and one person at a time because as the gospel spreads and the Holy Spirit enters into the hearts of people, change begins to happen. And the more uh, they move from poorly treated slaves to brothers and sisters in Christ who are still on the same level, worshiping Jesus as a unified church, which shows us that if we wanna change the world, we start with gospel change and not first policy change. Yes, policy change is good and needed, absolutely. We advocate for that. We do that, we vote, we get involved. But at the end of the day, lasting widespread change in our world happens first through changing hearts. 
through the power and advancement of the gospel and not only through the power of politics. Yes, changing policy, again, it's good and needed, but changing hearts through Jesus is far greater and it lasts much longer. And so that's how Paul is undermining the evil and harshness of slavery. He's getting at the hearts of people. And so we must see the evil that is slavery, we must see it came from the brokenness and the evil of, an evil of the Roman Empire formed by sinful people, and this did not come from God. Now, what we see in the Bible with slavery are broken people having to learn inside of a broken culture in a redemptive way. Because when Paul wrote this letter, again, it's estimated about a third of the entire population during the Roman Empire, they were considered slaves. And so as the gospel spreads and lives are changed, the evil and harshness of slavery, it changes with it. So as Paul addresses this group saying in verse 9, masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and there is no partiality with them. Y'all, that was transformational and revolutionary. Again, Paul made it really clear, both the slave and the master in the eyes of God, they are the same. They are brothers and sisters in Christ and there is no difference. But tragically, throughout church history and into American history, people within the church totally missed all of this. And they saw slavery in the Bible as a justification to having slaves, which is just totally wrong. Because again, the slavery seen in the Bible came from the evil of outside structures built on evil people, seeing things like Egypt in the Old Testament and the Roman Empire in the New Testament. And no, it did not come from God. Paul absolutely did not advocate for slavery. No, he advocated for unity and love and brotherhood and sisterhood. And here he's showing us how to live redemptively inside of a broken economic structure and how God can take what is evil and turn it for good. And so for us today, no, the economic structure of slavery and bond service thankfully don't legally exist inside the United States. Yes, there are modern day forms of slavery like sex trafficking that we fight against. But at the most practical level for us here today, the principles and the intent of the passage still apply to us as we think about work with things like managers and employers, with coaches and players, or with teachers and students leading us to our second point where we're gonna spend most of our time. Number two, the gospel and work. So just like following Jesus reshaped and changed how they worked within the context of slavery during the Roman Empire, in the same way, the gospel also reshapes how we as Christians today work in our jobs and careers and maybe for students under the authority of teachers. And so in this second point, we're gonna have two subpoints that are more geared towards our text, looking at those who work under someone similar to bond servants, seeing uh, 2A, obedience in the workplace comes by obeying God. And then also those who have people who work under them, addressing the owners and managers and bosses and teachers, seeing uh, 2B, God honoring authority in the workplace represents Jesus. Again, it's the employer-employee relationship. It's the boss and the one who listens to the boss. Again, the intent of this passage is to show us how we interact with uh, those that we work with. He's addressing the concepts of obedience and authority and how we work and labor in a spirit-filled way. So our first sub-point, again, we'll address what it looks like to obey someone who's over you in the workplace, seeing to a obedience in the workplace comes by obeying God. Again, this obedience factor comes into play here. And I think we can agree that obedience is difficult. We've talked about this because our desires compete with what we're being asked to do. Like we're asked to clean the toilets, but guess what? We don't desire to clean the toilets. So obedience is a challenge. We're asked to turn a report in by Friday at five, but guess what? Our desire doesn't like that idea. 
And so obedience is just not fun. We're asked to do a task in a specific way, but we think our way is better, and so obedience, it just becomes frustrating. You know, on and on we could go about this, but we all get the idea that there are times during our work week or when we have chores around the house or in school or in volunteering when we're asked to do something and nothing inside of us wants to do it. Well, that's what Paul, that's who Paul is addressing. I mean, just imagine these bond servants that are under a binding contract for seven years. Maybe they have a good master, maybe they don't. Maybe they like what they do, maybe they don't. But what I know that Paul knows is that obedience is not always easy. And so because of that, he says in verse five, bondservants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling with a sincere heart as you would Christ. And so there's four phrases here that, I wanna, that Paul uses that I wanna point out. First, he says, obey your earthly masters. Like that's the command. We're called to obey those whom are over us in the workplace or in school, like who, who have authority over us. And so when a supervisor says, clean the toilets, we as followers of Jesus, we clean the toilets. When our boss says, have the report in by five, we do it, we obey. That's what Paul is calling for here. But then he answers the question, well, in what way? Like, how do we obey? What should this look like? And he says, with fear and trembling. So there's a sense of respect in our obedience. And then he says, thirdly, with a sincere heart, meaning don't just look like you're obeying, but walk in obedience even when the boss isn't looking. Like, don't be a hypocrite. No, be sincere. Be genuine and authentic in your obedience. Let obedience come from a good heart and not from a cold and frustrated heart. So if the master's temptation is to use their authority and to threaten, then the bondservant's temptation was to just be lazy and not to be fruitful in their work. And the same is true for us today. If we're following Jesus, there is no room for laziness in our work. No, we're called to be sincere and respectful in what we do. And then notice... He says, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ. And this is the heart, this, is, this gets at the heart of all of this. Because when we ask, how do we honor and respect authority? How do we work faithfully and sincerely when we don't really want to? Well, we work as if we're working for Jesus. And for me, this idea was revolutionary in my life when I first became a Christian for both my schoolwork and also how it worked in the workplace. Because I came, when I became a Christian before, like I, I didn't really struggle with school, but I also just didn't really care. Like I did just enough to get by. And then when I gave my life to Jesus, one of my friends saw this in me. He saw that I was kind of apathetic in my schoolwork and I didn't really like it. And then he told me what he did to help him. He said he, turns in every, he turned in every assignment and studied for every test as, this, as if he were turning it into Jesus. And for me, that was revolutionary, and it totally shaped how I work. I started to see my school as a way to honor and worship the Lord, even if I didn't like it. And the same is true for how we all work today. Just ask yourself, how would you do your work differently if Jesus was your supervisor? If Jesus sat down in your office and said, can I have this report by Friday at five, even if you didn't want to do it, how would it change the way you did it if Jesus was your supervisor? You know that story that I told earlier where my boss flipped over the cart and flew out of the store and squealed wheels? Like the only reason I picked it back up was for this exact reason. Remember, I was in this season of wrestling through how do I honor the Lord with my work because I remember in that moment very, very vividly thinking like, like just thinking about what we're talking about today and thinking, Lord, I am not picking this up for my boss. But I remember also thinking, no, I'm picking this up for you. 
And so please hear me, by no means am I saying I'm great at this. No, I'm just like the rest of us. I'm a forgetful person. I so often forget who I work for. Y'all, this happens to all of us. We so easily forget that we work for God and not for man. We forget that God is our first boss. We forget that Jesus is our master. And at the end of the day, our boss or our supervisor at work, whether they realize it or not, they report to God. And unless they're asking us to sin or disobey God in his word, then our call is to obey them as a means to obeying God. We obey our supervisors and managers and bosses as if we were working for Jesus. And then Paul, he elaborates on this in verse six and says, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ doing the will of God from the heart. Now Paul here is putting his finger on a different motivation for why we often work and obey in the workplace. Y'all, the, the Bible, it just like pegs us between the eyes sometimes. Paul, knew, Paul knows that our obedience is so often not to please God, but rather to please man. And we just think about how often we, go, we may go the extra mile and do what we're told, not because of an act of worship to the Lord, but rather as a means to get praised by those around us. And Paul intentionally shows us our motivation for obedience is not to be brought through the praise of people, but rather to honor and praise the Lord. God wants us to obey as worship to the Lord and not worship to people. And when we peel back the layers, we start inspecting why we obey or why we're motivated at work. We need to ask, are we doing it? So people will say, wow, they're really good. Like, look how awesome they are. Are we doing it to be noticed? And we start to going down this rabbit hole of what drives us at work, the ple- people pleasing hole. It is a dangerous hole to go down. Because as soon as that rabbit leaves and people aren't pleased with us at our work, we're left in this hole alone and it is so empty and it can be crushing. Being motivated by the praise of people in our work, whether it be for awards or accolades or recognition or maybe even for money, if that's our primary motivation, it is a quick way to live disappointed because God did not create us to live for people or or for money. No, he created us to live and work for God as our master and to worship God with our work. Because when we mess up at work, when God is our master, the gospel tells us that God, our master, he is still pleased with us. When we don't hit our metrics at work, the gospel tells us that we don't, trust, uh, we don't trust in our finished work, but rather Jesus's finished work at the cross. We don't have to work to please man. No, we work for the Lord because guess what? God's already pleased with us. We don't have to work to please him. No, we work as a re- response to the work he did for us at the cross. We work as a response to God's love for us. Again, we work, we work as worship to the Lord and not for him to be pleased with us. Look what Paul said in verse seven and eight, right after he said, doing in the will of God from the heart, he said, rendering service in verse seven, with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or is free. Again, we work for God and not for man. And then in verse eight, he says, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether bondservant or free, no matter the position. And so Paul here is pointing to our reward that God will give to us as we work for him and not for man. And so when we work for man, our reward is temporary and it's not even guaranteed. But when we work for the Lord, our reward is eternal and promised. Christian, this is good news. When you go the extra mile at work, when no one is watching, when no one will recognize it, your reward is not here on earth. The reward comes from God and God sees it and God smiles at you. 
When we work as Christians, we don't need any recognition from those around us. We don't need praise from people. We don't need awards from men. No, we work for the Lord. We work for the rewards that we will gain in heaven. And so how do we work joyfully in a job that we don't like with a boss that's mean and rude? Well, how do we do it? We turn our work into an act of worship to the Lord. We see every detail of our work as a means to worshiping the Lord, knowing that in doing so, God is shaping us into his image. We do the monotonous task and painful work with our eyes on the cross, remembering that God gave up his life for us and those rude and mean people that treat us poorly, may they be a temporary reminder to us of what Jesus went through by taking on the sin of the world. And when we experience the pain of the world through our work, God takes that and uses that and then he shapes us into his image. When your boss is mean and rude and unfair, may it point us to the cross. When your customers yell and scream at you in their anger, taking things out on you, may it remind you of Jesus being mocked and ridiculed on his way to the cross at Calvary. When you're wondering how in the world am I going to finish all the work, may we be reminded that this world is temporary, we work hard, we do our best, but we're also finite people, and one day, because of Jesus, everything will be marked finished and complete. New City, because of the fall and because of sin and evil and brokenness, our work is toilsome. We know this. It's hard. It's labor. It's a grind at times. But one day, church, our work will only be worship. One day, our work will only be delight. And in this world, on this side of heaven, may the toil of our work remind us of the cross, but point us to the hope that is to come. And you know, I can't help but think of the people, the third of the people that were considered slaves that were in the church at Ephesus, listening to this as the letter was read with Paul saying, slaves obey your masters. They couldn't have been easy to hear, especially for those that found it extra challenging. I mean, can you imagine in that moment as this is being read with the Spirit convicting their heart, with God working in them as they hear these words and as they sit there taking all of the sin, thinking, yes, but what about the ones who are making this hard and difficult? Like, can't you talk to them? And then our last verse, verse 9, had to be such a blessing and encouragement. So revolutionary. Just imagine being a slave sitting there, being addressed in the same room with your boss or your master, and they read verse nine from Paul saying, masters, do the same to them. Stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master's master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. I just imagine the, the weight and the tension from the slaves just being taken off. What a relief, what a blessing. Paul just said, do the same to them, meaning respect them, listen to them, be sincere, be honest with them. He's telling them to treat them how you would treat Jesus. He said, stop threatening them. He's saying, y'all both have the same master. God is over both. You report to the same boss. I mean, can you imagine this? These new new Christians were just told, treat your slaves who are also Christians the same way you would treat Jesus. Jesus. Like, don't threaten them. No, be kind, be gentle, be respectful, be patient, be forgiving. Treat them like their family. You're all equal in the body of Christ. He's showing, show them the heart of God. Show them Jesus because you're a brother and sister in Christ. Leading us to 2B, God honoring authority in the workplace represents Jesus. So listen, if you have anybody under your authority at work, our job and our purpose is to show them the heart of God under our authority 
So if you're a boss or a manager or a supervisor or a teacher, part of your job is to lead and teach other people that report to you. Like part of your job description as a Christian is to lead like Jesus, lead through Jesus, and lead for Jesus. Christian, part of your job description is to be a picture of Jesus in the workplace. We manage other people as worship to the Lord. We don't do it for their respect. We, do it for us to, we don't do it for us to get any awards or accolades or to show that we're great in any way. No, we lead for the Lord and not for man. We lead through the power of Jesus and not for the praise of people. God-honoring authority doesn't need to demand or remind people that they're in charge or that they have, hold any power or authority. No, that's seeking the praise of people, not the praise of the Lord. God-honoring authority doesn't threaten people. It shepherds people. It cares for people. It leads people to Jesus. God-honoring authority lays down their life and lovingly serves their people. And no, this doesn't mean we just get walked all over in the workplace. No, not at all. But it does mean you treat your people as if they were Jesus. It means we don't ask people to do anything that we wouldn't do ourselves. It means we take up the towel and not throw around the weight of a title. Well, Jesus never demanded his allegiance. No, he lovingly earned it. And when someone under you isn't following your lead, that's when we need to ask, well, what does Jesus do for us when we don't follow his lead? Well, for one, he's gracious and merciful. He's patient with us. He's kind to us. But then as we saw last week, he does discipline. But how, God, how does God's discipline, how does he discipline his people? He does it to lovingly correct. He does it with much patience and care. And so yes, correction in the workplace is done as a means of love, but the point of it is to see people become more like Jesus. And if we never correct any wrongdoing in the workplace and we just avoid conflict, we're not helping anybody. Because we must remember correction is good and right, but the way in which we do it is just as important as us actually doing it. You know, one of the best things that happened to me early on in ministry and in work was being corrected for all the, th- the silly things that I did. Those were great learning experiences and if we never address them, like we're withholding the opportunity for our brothers and sisters in Christ to become more like Jesus. But the point here is that our, in our work and how we work and how we treat those under us, we're showing them a picture of God's heart. When we're patient and kind, when we're honest and genuine and don't talk about people, the sad reality is in our culture, that is revolutionary in the workplace. I mean, the idea of just not threatening those under you and treating them like we would treat Jesus, if we just did that, we're showing Jesus to the world. But I also know with all of this, we need the Spirit's help because this is not always easy when people under you are being difficult or hard to work with. It's not easy when you're in a job we don't love and it's not fun. And so at the end of the day, we have to remind ourselves and remember that our hope is not in our career or in what we do, but it's in the Lord. If we are searching for our job or our career to give us joy, we are, we are going to be disappointed. And please hear me, yes, God created us to work. We, we, we should pursue life-giving, purposeful work. God has equipped each of us to live out our calling and purpose, which does include our vocation. When God created us, he created us to work. He created each and every one of us with unique gifts and passions and desires to bless the world with. God created work to reflect the image of God, and God is a laboring and a creating God. God created us to work and to delight in it as a good gift from God. New City, the toil that comes in work that didn't exist under, it didn't exist until after the fall in Genesis chapter three. 
which tells us that yes, we live in a Genesis 3 world where work is hard and a struggle while at the exact same time, part of our gospel hope in this life is that we can live, also live out of a Genesis 1 and 2 reality where there is good and blessing in our world when, which also includes our work. God created us to work as a means of delight and purpose. It's for our good. Like we, we design and we engineer and we teach and we counsel and we labor and we create and we manage and we develop and we help people get back to health and we do it as a means for living out the God, the way in which God created us to live. Again, work is for our good. It's a blessing, but we also know work is secondary where God is primary. Our joy from work will come and go, but God, he is a sure and stable foundation. And so no matter what we do in our life, if we're finding our primary and foundational joy in our work or our career, we will be disappointed. We'll get to the end of our life and we'll realize we were climbing the wrong ladder. No, I love my work. I love what I get to do. But as soon as I put my identity and joy in what I do, I too can be discontent and disappointed. Our identity is not in our work title. No, it's in Jesus. We work for God and not for man. Our identity is servant and saint, it's not boss. Our identity is freed sinner, not slave. Our identity is child of the king and not the king. And so no matter where you are today, my hope and prayer is that our heart and soul would be drawn to Jesus. That our life would be grounded on the Lord and that we'd be marked as worshipers of Jesus and satisfied by Jesus. You know, I, again, I get that many of you come in today just tired and weary, just worn out by your job. Maybe it's life-giving, maybe it's not. But my call today is for us to remember that when we're weary, what do we do? We come to him who gives us rest. Our jobs, our bosses, our employees, we all know there's a struggle and a toil that comes. It's labor, it's work. And our call today is not first be an obedient worker or a great boss. No, our, call, our first call today is for all of us to come to Jesus and just rest in his goodness just delight at his table, sit at his table and just be fed by the goodness of God. Today, the Lord doesn't say work harder, do better, be a better worker. No, he says, I'm proud of you. God says, I love you. He, he says, come and just sit at my table that I've worked for you and just delight. He says, bring your burdens to me and be satisfied in my presence. Church, that's our call today, to go deeper and deeper into our gospel identity. And as we're satisfied in the Lord, delighting in Him, filled by the Spirit, remembering who we are in the Lord, you know what happens? The way in which we work, it begins to be reshaped and renewed. Let's pray. God, you're so good to us. God, you teach us and you instruct us and you mold us and you shape us even in how we work. God, work can be toilsome at times. It can be so hard and difficult, but God, you love us and you care for us and you shepherd us through our work. God, you call us to work for you and not for man. God, you call us to labor and delight in you and not to labor for, for people around us. God, may we be first worshipers of Jesus. May we rest and delight in your love and care. We ask this all in Jesus' name, amen.